0: People look around them and they see that problems aren't being solved. The basic problems in their life, getting their kids educated, getting trained up for jobs, um, our infrastructure, we, people look around and they see that 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 in, in many cases their governments aren't working for them and people are smart. And so they they lose faith that that that, that their government can't work for them. So I, I think a lot of it is that, is that they don't see the biggest problems being solved.
1: That's Mitchell Weiss, author of We the Possibility. I'm your host, Patrick McGuinness, and this is FOMO Sapiens. When the world's spinning out of control, it can be impossible to know what to do and what to miss out on. That's called FOMO, which is short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term, and I'm the world's first FOMologist. And this is the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers, people I call FOMO sapiens, how they live and work with conviction no matter what life throws at them. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO sapiens. And today we're going to talk about something pretty serious, actually. So buckle up. I want to talk about our democracy And the fact that it's threatened and what we can do about it, because after the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I was deeply distressed. And this is not just a U.S. problem. This is a problem globally. In fact, there was a survey that I found that talked to 33,000 people in 28 countries. And what it found is that people trust business way more than they trust government. 61% of people, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, expressed their trust in business. Only 53% trust their government. And that is really sad. And that's not good because we need government. Government can do some things that business doesn't do well, right? Government can be there when you have a global pandemic to help pick up the pieces, to create effective policies, to make sure you get vaccinations, to make sure that businesses can operate. There's all kinds of things. If you are talking about COVID, racial injustice, crime, food insecurity, addiction, government needs to work appropriately so that there can be solutions. And also government needs to set rules of play so that businesses can be successful. So you have to have good government and you have to have trust in government to make things work. And right now, Things just are not going in the right direction. And so I wanted to bring in somebody who is an expert and knows how we can fix these things. And so my guest today, his name is Mitchell Weiss, and he actually was my classmate at Harvard Business School. But while some of us ran off to Wall Street or to Silicon Valley, he stayed in Boston and worked for the mayor and now is back at Harvard Business School as a professor. He teaches a class on public entrepreneurship. Now, when he worked for the mayor, he was the chief of staff to Thomas Menino. And in that time, he co-founded the mayor's office of New Urban Mechanics. Wow. Okay, so Mitch has done a lot of really interesting things. And one of the things that he's done is written a new book, which we're going to be talking about today. And he starts that book by talking about what it was like to be in Boston working for the mayor at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing back in 2013. He was there that day, and he was part of the team that put together the immediate response to set up a fund that was called the One Fund. And it was really important because there's all these things that happen around the world. People send their money, but it takes forever for the money to get to the victims. But with the One Fund, just 75 days after they created the fund, nearly $61 million, Made it to survivors and families of the victims. And so this was a big deal. And it really taught Mitch how government can be entrepreneurial in the response to challenges in order to get things done. And so I wanted to start our conversation on that topic. So I asked Mitch to tell me about the day of the bombing and its aftermath.
0: That day is, as you know, typically the best day in Boston. And it was shattered in an instant. And I lived a couple hundred yards from the from where the second um, bomb essentially went off, and was actually leaving my house, my wife and my daughter were going to go see the the, the 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 marathon. I was actually leaving to go see the mayor, who I worked for at the time. I was just chief of staff, who happened to be in the hospital for totally unrelated reasons. And there were people streaming towards our house, uh, crying, and that was actually the first way I knew that something wrong had happened. Actually, even before I got the emergency notifications, I uh, raced down to the medical tent there, uh, snuck my way inside. Um, it was very organized, very orderly. The, there was this handwritten sign, though, off to the left, which read uh, morgue. And I knew because the mayor couldn't be there, I had to uh, go in and and see what was inside. And fortunately, there was nobody there, but, but three people had perished on the street that day, including an eight-year-old boy. And so uh, began, uh, you know, the response, uh, if you will, was already underway. Uh, medically and um and 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 uh, so, and the criminal justice response was already underway. But so began the response to help knit a city back together um that
1: day, and so you're working for the mayor, and there are people in need. And you had observed that after big crises, people get a lot of money, but the money doesn't make it to people efficiently. And so I guess the big problem that you decided to solve starting that day and going forward was how to make sure that the people who were affected, by this this terrible attack we're taken care of. So what did you do in the response?
0: Yeah, we, the generosity began to pour in from around the world almost instantly. It's incredible. But we had observed that when that had happened in other cities, in particular, when it had happened in, in Sandy Hook, after all those kids were killed in that school, um, that the money didn't make it back out to the people it was intended for quickly enough. It had been well over 100 and, um, days, in fact, since Sandy Hook and Not a Penny had made it to the parents of those children. It wasn't going to bring them back, but it was not intended for them. And so we wanted to do it differently. We, what normally happened was the big local established institution in town collected and gave out those monies. And that made sense. It was It was prudent, but it was also slow. And we had people in Boston who would be making life-changing decisions about limbs, about jobs. And so we wanted to get the money out quicker, and so we decided to start up our own new fund. The mayor, the governor, help from the business community, and so we—what did we do? We first had a conversation with the head of the local foundation, who, as you can imagine, was not happy. In fact, I remember him vividly telling me, "You can't start something new; you'll raise less money." Uh, we did anyways. We—he was probably—he probably going to be right, by the way. I mean, I don't blame him for saying that. But we—we we went ahead anyways because we wanted to do something quicker, and we were up that night with one sentence and a PayPal link and the next morning with a post office box and began collecting money instantly and began working towards getting it out almost as fast.
1: And so you, you thought like an entrepreneur, right? And so your new book is all about public entrepreneurship. So for, it's a new term, I think we can guess what it means, but why don't you tell us in your own words, what is public entrepreneurship?
0: The idea of public entrepreneurship is, you know, can we take the skills and practices that we think of as being confined to the private world and port them over for public stuff? It's actually new to us, but it's not brand new. Eleanor Ostrom, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics, I believe coined the term in the 60s, and she really believed there could be a more innovative way of solving public problems, all of us together. And... Um, but we, we, it hasn't become a dominant term because that's not normally the way that we think about a solving public problems or b using entrepreneurship. So, uh, I'm trying to, with the book and in my, in my work at, at Harvard business school and more broadly help us enter a, a, a more robust era of public entrepreneurship, where we all together, uh, work to solve public problems. And the marathon example for me was illustrative because, um, you had one instance, which is, look, let's look at the resources we have, this institution, it's programs and services. And just do the best with what we've got. Or we could do what entrepreneurs do, which is look at the problem in the world and try to bring resources to it and try to solve it that way. So there's this giant mindset shift. And I I think that is as much of what public entrepreneurship is anything. And, and I think of it really as, as possibility government, as, um, as trying things that would only possibly work, Patrick, which, as you well know, means they probably won't. Um, and that's scary. And especially these days, that's massively scary. Are you kidding me? Are you suggesting we should, you know, only try things that will only possibly work? Well, yes, I, I am suggesting that because I think that's what's going to take to solve the biggest problems that face us, and that's the realm of the entrepreneur. Most pub, most ventures fail, but the ones that succeed, most new ventures, the ones that succeed are ultimately transformative, ideally for the good.
1: Now, I was as we as I was thinking about our conversation today, I did a little Google researching about public trust in government, right? And I, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but or anybody who's listening that the numbers are terrible. Seventy five percent of people, according to Pew Research, say that they are concerned about trust in government. So we have this crisis of confidence in the U.S. and in many other countries around the world. Tudo bem, meus queridos Homo sapiens. Now, that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Before we get into the solutions, what is like, from your perspective as somebody who thinks about this all the time, like what is the problem out there? Why do we have this lack of trust?
0: I think there are Obviously, not one single reason why we have um, this declination of trust. And, as you point out, it is prominent, not just of late. It's actually been decline. It's been happening over the last many years, and it exists all around the world. It's not just, for example, here in the United States. My view is that a large part of it is people look around them and they see that problems aren't being solved. The basic problems in their life, getting their kids educated, getting trained up for jobs, um, our infrastructure,. Uh, we, people look around and they see that, that, that in, in many cases, their governments aren't working for them. And people are smart. And so they, they lose faith that, 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 that their government can't work for them. So I, I think a lot of it is that, is that they don't see the biggest problems being solved. And so then you ask, well, why is that? Why are the biggest problems solved? And I, I think it is this focus on essentially probability government instead of possibility government. It's this focus on, by governments, the people in them, very good people who are inclined to try things that will probably work work in quotes, but lead to sort of middling or mediocre outcomes and are disinclined to try to focus on things that would only possibly work. And well, why is that? Why do they, why do they want to stay with what feels safe? Even though, by the way, we should point out it's not. If schools aren't working, if people aren't reading if people aren't being fed, then those aren't safe choices. But why are our public leaders inclined to to stick with what's sort of been done before? Well, because they feel like they're going to get punished if they try something and fail at it, or or in fact, maybe they have been.
1: So it sounds good. I get it, right? So the idea that being risk averse and just doing the old tried and true, which probably, you know, may work but not be great. It's sort of like a sort of a, 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 a meh response versus something that really drives true change. It sounds good. Give us an give us an example of of the difference between I guess what you call probability government and possibility government like how 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 does that work in real life?
0: There's a real life example from the opioid epidemic, which is now a real life example from the covid epidemic, which I find really enlightening. So, um what happened uh as as op- opioid addiction and overdoses ravaged American um States, cities, rural areas in common. What they uh, had sort of done in the past, which was overdoses came in, and they tried to respond and put together uh, expanded treatment programs or provide some more supports for um, for prevention programs. And but that's not going to be enough or be fast enough to stop the ravages of opioid addiction. Two women, uh, Mariana Matus and Nusha Gailey start this company called Biobot, which is. The, the notion they have is actually if we could actually go into your sewers and turn the waste that's in there into data, we could figure out where your uh, people are consuming what communities, not individual people to protect pri- privacy, but what what communities are experiencing uh, large amounts or, or, or witnessing large amounts of opioids in people's, you know, in, in their excrement, in their waste. We could tell you uh, about the prevalence of opioids before people are overdosing and dying. To, to me, that's a perfect example of possibility government. There's that's not pro, that's probably not going to work. Getting access to sewage, getting into the getting the getting the sewage, turning that sewage into data, turning that data into action. It's probably not going to work, but it possibly might. And it pot, what save lives in opioids? And then what do they do? Uh, they take everything they've learned and they they turn it to COVID, so they can tell communities what the prevalence of of COVID is in communities now, even in the absence of robust testing regimes. It's a perfect example of saying, look. For hundreds of years, when we've tested waste, from uh we've mostly tested it uh, uh when, hundreds of years, i guess I, for for the, all the years we had wastewater plants, when we've tested waste, we've we've tested it actually on its way out the door to make sure it's clean to go back in the environment
1: so that one, I get it, because it's sort of like you're doing something that like if you fail, nobody dies, right? But can you take this mindset and say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to be entrepreneurial when it comes to like provision of really essential services, heat, food, you know, emergency medical. Like how do you port that over to things where if you really mess up, people get hurt?
0: Look at the testing around autonomous vehicles. Of course, get hurt. Right We way, this famous episode of this woman in Arizona uh, who's killed by a, uh, uh, by an autonomous vehicle by essentially by, by an Uber uh, ca- a robot car. Um, so here's, so here's an area where someone could get hurt, uh, actually in the testing of something new, uh, new robot cars and the people who allowed them to go on the roads. In that case, the governor of Arizona, uh, governor Ducey, uh, in an instance that I wrote about and detail in the book in Pittsburgh, the mayor there, Bill Peduto. So here we're talking about trying something new, robot cars in our streets, which could be potentially fatal. How do you think about for that? Well, first of all, I think you have to ask yourself, why would governor Ducey? try something that's potentially fatal on his streets. And maybe you have one answer, which is well, politics, he sort of, you know, he's a he he sort of is a, you know, light regulation touch kind of a person. And he, and maybe you say economic development, which is, well, he sort of said to California, hey, if you're going to put all these regulations on these robot car testing companies, well, I'm going to invite them to come here. Those would all be reasonable explanations. The other, the other reason is that college kids in Arizona are driving drunk and killing other college kids in Arizona and other people. And maybe Governor Ducey wants to get to robot cars because human cars are dangerous. This go- human-driven cars are dangerous. This goes back to the point of oftentimes the status quo is the dangerous choice. And so one way to think about you know food, uh, uh, heat is it, it may feel perilous to try something new, but when people are going hungry, doing nothing is perilous too. The other way to think about it, I think Patrick is is in then when you're going about testing that dangerous thing to do it in prescribed fashion, to do it in stages. We, we, we know how to test dangerous things. I mean, the COVID vaccine is, a, is an example. Um, right now, hundreds of uh, potential COVID vaccines tested to make sure they were safe before they're deployed on the world writ large. I mean, why don't we take that kind of mentality into more aspects of our public life?
1: Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. So who's doing this well? I mean, you mentioned Arizona there. That's an interesting, I, I, I hadn't even thought of that uh, as, a, as an example of, of what you're talking about, but it's, it's a compelling example. But when you think around the world, and you look at governments, you know, some are way more effective than others. Who has figured this out better, and what are they doing? Like, why have they gotten this down when others have not? So,
0: what I observe is that actually this phenomenon of public entrepreneurship does exist around the world. And if we look, we will find people doing it in uh, on all in all uh, countries. Uh, I suspect on, on almost all continents, um, there are people doing this. I would not say though that there's like a country for the most part. Uh, or even a city that who does this like dominantly like this is their dominant way of working and so we have work to go on this front everywhere. I, I would point out, say here in the United States, um, there's a there's a mayor I reference in the book, Mayor Melvin Carter of of Saint Paul, uh, Minnesota, and he is somebody who is avowed about making sure that we're trying new things and also I think pretty deliberate about uh, about engaging new uh, people. In the provision of those new things. He loves to say that his best ideas are in other people's heads. And the first step of possibility government is realizing that we in government don't have all the good ideas and we need to go outside to get them. And we can't just go to the think tanks and the corporations to get them. We have to go to the people in our community. So he's outstanding at that. He's also outstanding at, at trying new things in fairly um, modest ways, not sort of waiting four or five years and hiring all the consultants to sort of deploy the big new thing. And I would say what makes him so good at it is is that he's relentlessly focused on solving the problem and and then sort of like in the way an entrepreneur w- might might say let's look at the problem and make sure we're 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 addressing it not settling um he he looks at the public safety challenge in his city and he wants to upend how people have done public safety he wants to really harness the community and the provision of public safety and people push back on it. and he says look since i became city councilor then mayor we spent 30 million dollars more on public safety, uh, now than then, do you feel thirty million dollars safer? If not, let's try something new. Um, he, one international example I'd give um, would be Singapore and their and their GovTech um, agency is a digital transformation agency, and the response uh, that they have had during COVID has been highlighted for many reasons. In part, uh, it raises some privacy uh, issues that we would be, we would be sensitive to here in the U.S., but uh make no mistake, the the skill set, the knowledge, the resources they had beginning in January, already on the already in place to be innovative and nimble and agile are totally remarkable. And if if cities, states, governments want to do this well, the other answer to your question, why, Patrick, is you have to invest in the resources and the people and the talent to have an uh, a possibility skill set ready for when you need it.
1: Yeah, you, you bring up COVID. And as I listened to this and as I read your book, what I was thinking to myself as I shook my head in frustration and anger is if you had a functioning government in the United States, because let's not mince words, our government is not working right now. If you had a functioning government, you could give people vaccines. You would have to, I mean, you can get a test at this point. I mean, I live in New York City. Getting a test is super hard. It's ridiculous. We're a year into this, it's outrageous. You can't get a vaccine because it's totally disorganized. It is like it's it's a it's a it's a crying shame. I I could go on, by the way, about this all day, but I won't because dear listeners, I'm sure you feel frustrated as well. So uh, listening to me complain is not going to make your day brighter. So we're not going to do that today. But as I think about everything you're talking about, if government did these things, if government thought differently, you would see um you would see a massive difference and I, the other thing i think about as you're talking is uruguay so uruguay one of my favorite countries in the world love it uruguay small country 3 million people they have figured out how to basically become energy independent they have figured out all these amazing things that have improved the quality of their citizens because they they're able they have effective government and so everything we t- we've, we've become an inured to just ha- having a bad government but in fact, why should we, when we have a private sector that's entrepreneurial that provides us lots of great services, why can we not have those things in our government? So Mitch, I wanna I wanna just imagine with you, so we've we've had on the in the past Andrew Yang came on the show and he universal basic income and Andrew Yang, which you know his big entrepreneurial idea. and uh, now he's running for the mayor of New York. So I want to just imagine, and by the way, I think we should introduce you to him if you don't know him already, um, get you guys together you, let's say he comes to you and he says, Mitch, I'm, I get elected mayor. I want you to do your thing. Make our city function in the way that you want it to. What do you do? Like day one, what are the things that you need to do to make that happen?
0: The first thing I think you need to do is um, if you're newly elected mayor of any city, including New York city. Uh, God bless you. Um, is, is to, is to open yourself up to new ideas. I really think that's the first step we have to acknowledge that um, what, what, we have do, what we do mostly in governing is we take the ideas we have at hand and we try to make the best of them, we pick among them. And in, in your instance, right, A- um, A- Andrew has one giant idea um, and I'm certain he has other, idea, other ideas as well, but the, the, how do we say go to the New Yorker, go to the people of New York, go to outsiders, go to non-experts, say, look, here's our list of problems, uh, housing affordability, uh, mobility, Infrastructure, schools, and enlist outsiders in providing ideas. What you're going to get if you do that as a first step are a whole bunch of bad ideas. Right? We can only just imagine if we opened up, you know, a city government to all the, you know, all the wild ideas out there. You're going to get a whole bunch of bad ones. You are. I-, I make this argument in the book, and I know it sounds crazy. This minute, we need more bad ideas. You know why? Because along with those bad ideas, we're going to get a small number of good ones. That- that's the first thing I would do is if I was new mayor of a city, is say we need more ideas. We're going to accept the bad ideas, at least for this first instance, so that we can get along with them, the good ones. Then, as a second step, you need to figure out a way to sort the bad ideas from the good ones. And so, in some sense, that's what's happened with UBI. If you look at the pilots that are going on, that were going on in Stockton, that are now going on in St. Paul, that are going on in other cities, we say, look, before we uh, unleash this on a city the size of, of, of New York, let's try it in other places. Let's try it in a smaller instance. Let's try it with some philanthropic funding. That's all fine. So second step is let's figure out how to sort these good ideas from the, these bad ones via some uh, limited experiments. Those would be the first two things I would do. And um, and I would say, uh, I, I suppose anterior to sort of opening up to the ideas is a really good cataloging of the problems that face us and saying we can solve these. And as long as we prioritize them and, and open ourselves up to them and open ourselves up to trying new things.
1: Andrew, if you're listening... I think you need to talk to Mitchell. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to send it to an email. I'm not kidding. Because I think that uh, he should read your book and then he should call you up and get your ideas. Now, I have one final question for you, which is this. A lot of people listening here. So FOMO Sapiens listeners, our, our listeners are everywhere. We're everywhere. We've got people in Bhutan. We've got people all over Latin America, Europe, Asia. It's amazing. And I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, this sounds great. What can I do? Like, I'm a FOMO sapiens. I want to do stuff. Maybe I want to do it, you know, part time as a 10 percenter. But like, what can people do today to make their societies better, to put your thinking into action?
0: If we're going to get possibility government, we absolutely have to move there together, which means that, yes, we need public leaders, whether they're mayors or ministers of Bhutan or anything else, changing uh, the way they lead being braver, being more skilled for an entrepreneurship, by the way, if they're more skilled, they don't—they won't need to be as brave, but they won't be able to do it on their own. They're gonna need all of us. They're gonna need our permission, our encouragement, our co-participation. So the very first thing that you can do if you're not in office, you're not running a commission in your hometown, you're not on a, a city council in your, in your hometown is give your public leaders your permission for them to try new things. And if you feel even stronger about it, give them your admonition. Tell them, call them up. They're your neighbors. Go to go to their town meetings. Tell them the status quo isn't working for you. And then vote uh, as a possibilitist. Vote in a way that says, look, I'm going to vote for people who have showed me they're willing to try new things. They're going to be accountable for those new things. They're going to be accountable for learning from things that don't work. But vote for people who don't promise you success at the outset. Go vote for people who promise you learning.
1: Yeah. And one thing I learned anyway in this recent year is you can, I mean, we always think it's all about money. Politics is all about money. Yeah, there's money. There's tons of money in politics. Fine. You had people who had unlimited resources who couldn't win Senate races in a bunch of states in the U.S., right? So like money isn't enough. In fact, what I have learned in this political environment is like your time, energy, your sweat is more valuable even if tons of people are giving money. So it's a really inspiring message. All right, so Mitchell, I'm leaving today a little more inspired than when I came in. So, everybody, check out we the You can also find we the possibility on Instagram. Mitch Weiss, We the possibility. Thanks a lot for stopping by.
0: Thanks for having me, Patrick. Great to see you. FOMO.
1: Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to FOMOSapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show, and find out how to advertise. Also, head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMOSapiens is recorded in New York City.